Good morning, friends. Excited to be here with you today as we get things rolling. Excited to still be standing. Like John said, uh, my wife went to the retreat, and so we're super thankful and excited uh, that she is there. And uh, her reports have just been that it's been phenomenal. Uh, women just encouraging and challenging one another, getting filled up, which is great. But like, I'm just be honest, like. Like, my wife is the real MVP. Like, moms, y'all are the real MVPs. Because, like, I've been doing this thing for, like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, yes. And, like, mind you, like, I'm gone a lot. And I tried, like, I did, I did 39 speeches from Texarkana to Abilene to Galveston this month. So I was gone. So, like, Teresa does this all the time. And I guess, like, you get great at what you get reps at. So maybe, like, she just gets lots of reps, and that's why she's great at it. But I'm terrible at it. And, like, me being me, like, I thought, hey, my wife, she went to that school in Austin. <laughs> in case you're curious, Texas is still not back. And so, uh, you know, like this would be a great weekend. This would be a great weekend for me to take the kids down to College Station to the promised land. I could take them all three to a game. So I went, I like go big or go big. So I went to the sporting goods store. I bought them like the shirts and then like the headbands. And so like they're, they're geared out, you know, and we're like, and like, it was like Adidas. Like I'm not like getting like the fake Walmart brand stuff, uh, you know, which by the way, do you know how you know somebody went to uh, A&M is because they wear A&M stuff. Uh, but if you see somebody wearing Texas stuff, you just know they went to Walmart. And so anyways, uh, boom. And so, uh, so like I got them the Adidas and like, we're doing it. Like we're going big and like, I get the, it's going to be great. So we wake up early. We drive down to college station. Uh, we, uh, you know, we even hop on the, like the little, like the, the bikes with the, like, uh, the kids called them the bike cars where you sit in and they pedal you, uh, because like, Hey man, like, you know what? Like I got a job and like, God is good. And so, like, we ain't walking from the cheap parking all the way to Kyle Field seven miles. We're going to let somebody give us a ride. And so, anyways, so we get there, and, like, we're doing the game up, and it's big, and, like, we're beating UTSA because, you know, it was UTSA. And, like, I chose that game to make sure that a and couldn't mess it up and, like, put the bad taste in my kid's uh, mind. You know what I mean? And so, anyway, so we're out there doing it. First quarter's great. Second, you know, after the first quarter, uh, we had, like, little, like, $40 worth of, like, you know, a half a half a quarter of a burger and some fries. And then second quarter, we get the cotton candy because mom's not there. And then like halftime, we watch the band. Fourth quarter, or third quarter, we get a little bit more candy. And then I'm like, you know what? We're out. Like we won the game. We came, we saw, we conquered. We got the pictures and like, we're gone. So I leave early and I'm feeling good because nobody's melted down. Nobody's cried. I didn't end up on the fighting Texas Aggie jumbotron with my kids screaming, you know, or any of that. Feeling good about it, right? We get in the truck, we see my folks, we're driving back. I'm going, dude, I'm crushing this. Like, it's not that hard. I don't know why she, why she, what are you talking about? It's hard to have kids by yourself. And y'all, we get to Bucky's. <laughs> and we stop at Bucky's because we're good Texans. And we want to go and, you know, see Bucky and get, you know, hang out, go to the restroom and all that, change the diapers, do all that. And then I made the mistake. I'm just going to own it. I took the kids to the toy section of the Bucky's. Don't ever take your kids to the toy section of the Bucky's. You go to the bathroom, you go to the coffee, and then you go out. I went to the candy to the to the toy section, and then we lost it, y'all. Like it was like just full meltdown. We lost it, and then new, daylight savings time hit, and like that was terrible. And like some folks at daylight savings time, like they wake up and they're like, "Hey, I'm gonna go to bed at nine, but even though it's really eight, I'm gonna get the extra hour." Like respect to y'all. Y'all are responsible. And some folks. 
you know, of the younger generation, like 10 o'clock, it's really only nine. So I can mess around on my phone for another hour and I get it back, right? I get it. And then there are those that are parents and you... And you're trying to enjoy the extra hour in the morning. And then your, your seed comes with the hardback version of Goodnight Moon and chunks it in your face at 5.30 in the morning because you ain't brought them breakfast yet and it all gets run. Anyways, I say all that to say, moms are awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and if you haven't thanked your wife or your mom uh, recently, you need to do so uh, because they're, they're amazing and only a few more hours more until mine comes back. Amen. God is, God is good. And so, hey, we're, uh, we, got, we, got a lot of, we got a lot of sermon today uh, to, die, to dive into, and, and I'm excited about it as we continue in Romans and Romans chapter 7. And what I want to do today is I want to look at Romans 7 from four different perspectives. And my hope is that as we walk through this from these four different ways, this is the launching pad for your study and your engagement with God through Romans 7 for the rest of the week. So I don't know where you are in your journey. I don't know what you've brought into this place uh, to be here, what's waiting for you when you go back. So I can't speak to it, but I believe that God will speak to it through me to you. Um, and that whether you're going to be at a spot where you want to look at this from 30,000 feet or you need to get down in the dirt level and wrestle with Romans 7, that wherever you are in your journey, uh, my hope is that as we look at this in four different ways, it will equip you and prepare you to engage with God through the scriptures this week as we look at Romans 7. So to prepare our hearts to do that, if you would, stand with me and let's declare the Shema, uh, a prayer of declaration, of commitment of preparation as we uh, pray this and declare it. Let's ask that God uh, would speak uh, to us through the scriptures today. So let's declare the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akah, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Grab a seat and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Uh, on the same token, pull out some notes or open up your note app so that you can follow along and take notes as we move forward. So I mentioned we want to hit Romans 7 from four different ways. So I want to look at it from 30,000 feet, from 20,000 feet, from 10,000 feet, and I want to look at Romans 7 face to face. So as we look at it from the 30,000 foot view, I want us to, to remember where we are in the overarching argument that Paul is making. So fellas, if you show us our roadmap, you remember that Paul is making an argument to Jewish Christians to push forward to say that what Christ has done is not a contradiction of all that's come before, but rather it's a continuation of God's faithfulness. That as you remember the promises that God and the covenant that God made to Abraham way back when, that this is not in contradiction to that. In other words, it's not to say that Jesus showing up on the scene doesn't show up and say, well, the whole Abraham thing didn't work. And so now I had to send a new plan, a new way. Not at all. That Christ coming is the continuation of all that God had always planned and that Christ showing up is his faithfulness or his covenant faithfulness to Abraham. And so as you begin in Romans 1, we see that the good news 
is that God's grace gift is for all who believe. And Romans 1, 1 through 17 lays this out for us. And Paul declares, and, and, and maybe you've memorized it or captured it in your heart, Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save for all who would believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That it's for all, not just for some, but for all. And then as Paul continues, that's the thesis of Romans. As he begins to continue on to Romans 2 and into 3, you remember we talked how all people, not just the Gentiles, all people need God's grace gifts. And that as Paul is challenging and talking to the Jews, that there would be two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, you are one of the other. And Paul says, this grace gift is not just for one, but it's for all. And so we all need it. Romans 3 into 4, Paul lays out the argument that this grace gift is received through faith, not through works. And he gives the exemplar of Abraham and that Abraham was justified through faith and that it is by faith that this gift comes. It is by faith that this relationship between man and God is completely changed, not through a faithfulness to the law, but through a faithfulness, but through God's faithfulness and our faith response to that. Then from 5 to 11, and remember we're at 30,000 feet, and so Romans 7 falls right here. If we could put a big X on it, you're going to be at what, the 6, 7 o'clock right there, Romans 7, that's where you are in the map, that this grace gift changes our relationship with God. And Romans 5 all the way to the end of Romans 11 talks through how the relationship between man and God is changed by God's grace gift. And then it concludes from 12 on to say, now that we've received this grace gift, our relationship has been changed. Now, here's how our life is changed. So if we want to wrestle with Romans 7 at 30,000 feet, we want to remember the argument that Paul is pushing through that what happened on the cross is the continuation, or, or maybe even a better to put it, is the fulfillment of the covenant that was made with Abraham. So don't reject it, you who have been faithful, the Jewish, don't reject this, but instead continue on because this is the fulfillment of all that you've held dear. That's Romans at 30,000 feet with Romans 7 falling in this, our relationship with God has been changed by his grace gift. So if this week you want to wrestle at this high level with the big arguments that Paul is pushing forward, there, there you are. That's kind of going to give you the roadmap to wrestle in. But as we take, just drop the altitude a little bit and we come down to 20,000 feet, now what happens is we want to look at Romans 7 and the, in the literary context from Romans 5 to 8. So when we went from Romans 1 to 16, now we come down a little bit to Romans 5 to 8. And right in between 5 and 8, it's Romans 6 and 7. I'm good at math. And so, <laughs> that was, like, that's a dad joke. Have you seen the progressive commercials that say, we can't keep you from becoming your dad, uh, but we can keep you, we can get you to save? Uh, that, that was a dad joke. And so, anyways, I'm going to own it. And so, Romans 6 and 7 go together, Okay. Romans 5 and 8 serve as a bookend. And when we think about Romans 7, I think the great, Romans 6 and 7, the great verse to kind of capture those two chapters are verse, is verse 15 of chapter 7. Romans 7, 15 says this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, 
but I do the very thing that I hate. We can relate with that, can't we? We struggle with that. I don't do what I want to do, but I do do what I don't want to do. And so often when we wrestle with that verse, where does it take us? To our sin and to our shame, to our unfaithfulness. But when we look at Romans 6 and 7, this verse is kind of the highlight verse of it. It's written not to point to our unfaithfulness, but to draw us to God's faithfulness. That Romans 6 and 7 isn't about our unfaithfulness, but it's to show that God has been faithful despite. What does Romans 5 say in verse 1? Therefore, we are justified by faith. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we ever talk about our unfaithfulness, what, what does Paul talk about? God's faithfulness. Now, before we can wrestle with our sin, we've got to understand God's faithfulness. Romans 5, 9 through 11. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. And so before we jump into six and seven, which wrestles with the, I don't do what I do want to do. I'm dead to the law, but I'm living, I'm, I'm living in it. I'm not a slave to the law, but I'm living like a slave. Before we wrestle with any of that, We've got to come to grips with while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That's the front end. Then we wrestle with it. And what's the back end? As we come out of the back of Romans 7, it says, who, Paul writes, who will say, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this? What comes? But thanks be to Christ. And then Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you see, as Paul is moving forward this argument, he's going to talk about sin. He's going to talk about the struggle with the law, but it's only to make a point about the sufficiency of the love and the sacrifice of Christ. We track it? That's 20,000 feet as we start wrestling. So 30,000 feet, we got Romans as a whole, 1 to 16. 20,000 feet, we've got wrestling with our sin in the context of Christ's love and sacrifice and resurrection in five to eight. And then we come down to the 10,000 feet and we start wrestling with Romans six and seven. And Romans six and seven can be, uh, the, the outline of it are three questions. And we've talked about two of them over the last handful of weeks Today, we'll hit the third. And the three questions are found in Romans 6.1, 6.15, and in 7.7. 7. The first question, because again, remember, as Paul's writing, he does this all the time. He makes the argument, and then he imagines someone rebuking, someone coming back and trying to, to, to offer a rebuttal. And so, uh, as he makes the argument of the sufficiency of Christ in 5, Moving forward, it's the continuation of the covenant. In Romans 6, 1, he says, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace would abound? So this is an argument that Paul is imagining coming back to him to push back against what he said thus far. And of course, he says, by no means, how can we who died to sin go on living in it? And so then he lays that argument out. He, he's, rebu uh, he's offering the rebuttal. And then verse 15, the second argument, 
is what then? Should we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? He says, absolutely not. We're not slaves to that anymore. So don't live that way is his response. But again, he's imagining that people are pushing back against this way of Jesus. That's Romans 6, 1 1 to 15, and then 15 to the end of 6, but actually keeps going in the beginning of 7. And the beginning of 7 is kind of the, the closing, boom, I'm right, you're wrong, go sit down, son, to the first two questions of chapter six. That's the, like the Mackey International Version. You won't find that in the Greek, but you know what I mean. And so he, he lays out, and, and he even says in seven and verse four, he said, in the same way, you are dead to the law. Call him back to Romans six and verse one. So he says, we're dead to that. But there's yet another argument that, that he imagines coming back to them, and that's in verse seven. He says, what then should we say? that the law is sin. So as he comes out of this, he's imagining this pushback and then he saves kind of the big one for the last. So you're telling me, Paul, that the law that was given by God is sin? That's what you're telling. And and he's saying that's what those he's writing to might hear him say and then push back on it. And he says, by no means. Not at all. And then he begins for the rest of seven to explain this out. And he does so by making it personal. He goes through and he begins to use the I language from seven to 13. And then from 14 on, he makes it even more personal and talks about his own struggle. But that personalization and the struggle that he describes for the rest of seven is in response to this pushback that he imagines coming, that we would say that the law is sin. Now, before we read it, remember, and finish out being at the 10,000 feet, I want to kind of try to set up in today's language what Paul's about to argue so that we have a little bit of context for what we read. So what Paul is going to essentially argue is that the law is good and that it it is holy and good and perfect but that it serves a unique purpose for a unique amount of time. That it, that it plays a role. In Galatians, he'll talk about it as a, as a teacher. And that it teaches until what has, needs to be taught has been taught. And then the teacher has to pass on the student to what is next. Uh, you know, th- I told you we were at the Aggie game this weekend and we're walking around uh, because we were all like up on each other and we wanted to get rid of the wiggles. And so we're going for a walk around the stadium. I was just thinking, man, there's 85,000 people here. Like what would be the odds that I would run into somebody that I knew? You know, like what are, what are the odds? And then literally two minutes later, walking by a concession stand and I see one of my old professors. And so I look at him and he locks eyes with me and I'm thinking, like he kind of gives me the nod like, oh, hey, I recognize you. To which I thought, okay, you don't really recognize me, but you're just doing this because everybody recognizes you and you don't want to look like a jerk. So you just pretend that you know everybody so that if they lock eyes with you, you know, you don't look like the jerk, right? And uh, you, you don't know the name. And so you're like, hey, bud, how's it going? You know, what, you're going to try to look for some context clues. Don't act like you've never been there. It happens. And so, um, so knowing that, I'm like, hey, Dr. Petrick, Stephen Mackey. And he goes, hey, I know exactly who you are. And I'm like, Really? 
Because, like, I was not exactly, like, the best student. Like, <laughs> like you know, I was, kinda, like, one of those C for credit, D for degree guys. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, senioritis as a freshman. So, like, I wasn't exactly the kind of student that stood out as the phenomenal student, right? And, uh, and he goes, yeah, he goes, you'll never believe this. He said, my daughter uses, uh, is, is out of school and they use your character development curriculum. And so I get to watch you every week as I walk and talk through this with my daughter. And it's phenomenal. I'm so proud of what you're, what you're doing is amazing. And like, I'm, I'm blown away right now. And then he turns and he says, you know, this is Stephen Mackey. Yeah, he was one of my very best students. And I was like, really? Like, are you sure? Like, are you sure you're not like taking like how you feel about me now and like transport it back into, but it, it was, but the thing about him was that he was a phenomenal, uh, professor. Like literally you look at his resume um, and he has every award. There's phenomenal professor. But what he taught me could only fit within a certain course. Like, and he would teach me and he taught me the best. There was no one better until the course was over. And I learned the lesson. And for me to stay trying to learn new lessons from the old course, it wouldn't do me any good. And in the same way, the law was a teacher. And Paul's going to lay out that it came to teach us what was right and that sin would exploit. The sin within us would exploit the goodness in the teaching of the law such that we would sin. But that the law has served its purpose and that now we need to continue on to that what God has for us, justification through faith by grace in Christ. And so now Romans 7, verse 7 says, and following says this, what then should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Had the law not come, I wouldn't have been taught the lessons that the law needed to teach. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced within me all kinds of covetedness. That sin exploited, sin within me exploited the law. You see, apart from the law, sin dies. I was once alive apart from the law, a call back to Adam, the time of the garden, something that Paul has hit throughout Romans. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For since seizing an opportunity of the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and so the law is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond nature that the law had to teach what only the law could teach so that we could learn that if we try to do it on our own, if we try to do it, if we try to not follow all the way through to grace through faith, that we would be dead and there would be nothing. We, we couldn't get past it. That even, and then he goes to explain on, that even if we say, I don't want to do this thing that I do, by acknowledging we don't want to do this thing that we ought not do, we're acknowledging that the law is good. And so he says, so no way around it. The law teaches us, the law is good. The law teaches us what is right, what is wrong. Sin exploits what is good in the law such that 
this new law comes to work in me that I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. And the rest of seven is him personalizing this so that it can make the connection of what this big idea means. We track in there, 30, 20, 10. The 10 is in that Romans 7 saying the law is good. The law served a purpose. Once its purpose has been served, we must continue on what God has laid out. And the continuation is justification by grace through faith. Now let's come face to face. Now let's go past the 30,000, the argument, the 20,000, the context, the the 10,000, the wrestling with Paul's rhetoric. And let's like come down to your neighborhood. Let's come knock on your door, come into your kitchen, open up your refrigerator, pull out your peanut butter and jelly, and let's make a sandwich and sit down and talk in your dining room. Because as we begin to pray, and read the scriptures, the Lectio Divina, the divine reading of the scriptures. God, as I read this, would you speak to me? God, as I, as I read the scriptures, would you speak to me? And we begin to read Romans 7 and verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do, what I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. God, would you speak to my heart? And as we begin to pray that prayer, as we read that scripture, what happens? begin to see that there's a gap between who God has called us to be and who we choose to be. That there's a gap between what it is that we do and what it is that we want. That there's a gap and that because God has set us free, remember Romans 7 and verse 6, but now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. God, because you've called me to new life, will you help me close the gap? God, because you have called me on purpose and for purpose, will you help there to be integrity or congruency between my desires and my actions? And as we begin to pray that prayer, what quickly follows is, yes, I will. Will you do the work? This is Paul writes in Philippians that we have to work out our salvation. That it's a, it's a struggle. You remember Proverbs 27 and verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That sharpening is violent, right? It doesn't, that sharpening doesn't happen by osmosis. Like we just hang out together and have some sharpening tacos. No, it doesn't work that way. They're tasty, but it doesn't sharpen us. To sharpen, we've got to have a little bit of conflict, a little bit of challenge. We've got to get called out a little bit. We've got to put some work in. So what does it look like on the face-to-face level? We've gone 30,000 feet to -to face-to-face. What does it look like to wrestle with this face-to-face? How do we close the gap? Very simply, we game plan, we actualize, and we practice. We want to close the gap between uh, doing what I don't want to do and not doing what I do want to do. We want to close that gap, find congruency and integrity. We've got to close the gap. Game plan, actualize, and practice. Let's talk about each. Number one, and we're going to dive in as we talk about these, we're going to pull from the wisdom teaching because I want you to see that the on-ramp to engaging with God through scripture doesn't have to be 30,000 feet in Romans. It can be as simple as engaging in the Proverbs, the wisdom teachings each day. That one can lead you to the other, but you don't have to have the big to get the little. And so uh, we've got to have a game plan. You guys understand this, even if you're not athletes. If, if you do understand sports, you like it or whatever, um, 
you could have a lot of talent, but a poor game plan and still lose, right? Like we get that, right? Like Tom Herman lives it out every week. You could have great talent, boom, I'm on a roll. Call me butter because I'm on a roll today. And so uh, you, could have, um, you could have great talent without a game plan and you still lose the game. Fellas, <laughs> fellas, now I know that y'all are here. So this doesn't so much apply to you, but maybe there's been a time in your life where you thought that there was, I don't know, hypothetically like opening weekend, uh, one weekend coming up, and that you hypothetically would skip church uh, to go to the chapel in the woods uh, and to worship uh, there amongst nature and brother brother deer and sister fawn and all of that. Uh, I, you guys clearly aren't those people, but there are some who would do that. And if you were going to have that conversation, really the 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 game plan, the strategy isn't to convince God uh, that that would be okay, right? Because God is everywhere. Uh, The strategy would be to convince your wife that you should be gone for the weekend. And if that was your game plan, what would you do? Would you just stroll like, hey, baby, I'm going hunting this weekend. Ain't nothing you can do about it. Like a fool. Maybe if you're like a newlywed, right? You ain't been in the game very long, but you seasoned. You know know what's up. You about three or four weeks out, you start taking the trash out and not having to be asked. Yeah. You start doing the dishes. Like, baby, you, you go sit down. Just, you know what? You got a manicure. I don't want the, the dishwater to mess up the, the nails. I got you, baby. Don't worry. Go kick back and watch, like, you know, Dancing with the Stars. Isn't that a great show? Oh, they're so talented. Go watch The Bachelorette. It's okay. It's great programming. No, it's not. But you just let do your thing, girl. And then you slide in real easy and you're like, you know, baby, I was thinking, you know, we could, we could save a little bit of money on our grocery budget and we could, we could re, I know, I know you've been thinking that you really want that new vacuum cleaner. And so we could, no, don't do that. Yeah. You know, baby, I know you've been thinking you wanted a little trip. We could reallocate some funds. I'll just go harvest some meat. That way we don't have to spend money at the grocery store. I just harvest this meat. I'll process it myself, baby. I I mean, I I found a great deal on Cabela's.com. It's 75% off on an own grinder and I can grind the meat up and we're going to save all this money and we can reallocate that over here. And you're just real smooth about it, thinking like she doesn't know what you've been doing since day one, but you come in with a strategy and a game plan, right? And if we come up with a game plan to win a football game, and we come up with game plans to try to get our wives to let us go out hunting on opening weekend, how much more ought we come up with a game plan to fight the sin that's in our lives? Because we're not surprised when we sin, right? Is anybody surprised at the sin that they struggle with? Like, no, like it's, you, you're familiar with it. You know, it's, you know it's strategy. You know what it's going to do because you struggle with the same sins, the same as I do, over and over and over again. And yours are different than mine, and mine are different than yours. But we tend to struggle with the same things over and over again. And so if we want to close this gap, we've got a game plan against that, and we've got to recognize where we are weak so that we can bring someone else's strengths to it. Take a a look at this acrostic I put together. There are eight areas that we tend to struggle with. You take a picture of it and notice, and there's some Proverbs and some wisdom to go next to it. But I found that these are kind of the eight areas that we tend to struggle with. With our gets, I want to get more stuff. I want to get more money. I want to get more status. I want to get, get, get. And that getting leads us to bad choices, leads us to greediness. It leads us to lack of perspective. That getting brings all kinds of trouble. I wonder if you struggle with the gets. If that's an area of weakness, 
then you can invite someone who is strong in that area to come and to be your strength, right? Obviously, God is strong in our weakness on a spiritual level, but God has given us brothers and sisters that we walk life with to let their strength become ours when we're weak. If we're weak in an addiction, by definition, you can't defeat it because you're weak. So you got to bring somebody else's strength. Or maybe it's it was certain people, right? I tell kids all the time, you hang out with stupid people and you're going to do stupid things. Why? Because stupid people do stupid things. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so if you've got some stupid people in your life, you need to start praying with them and stop hanging out with them. Like, you know, like if they're causing you to stumble, then we need to put some boundaries up before you go and hang out with them, right? Uh, locations. If you just know that there are certain places that you start, like if you're an alcoholic, you don't need to go to a bar. Like it's real simple, right? Like if, if, if you're a shopaholic, like you don't need to go to amazon.com. <laughs> you need to block that place, you know, or whatever. Like, and so you begin to, to just strategize and go, you know what? I know where I struggle. So God, would you, would you bring somebody into my life? God, would you give me the courage to ask for help? That's why we don't like to strategize against these things because to get somebody else to bring some strength in to help us, we've got to admit that we're weak and we don't like doing that. There's no shame in it. Listen to the Proverbs chapter 21 and verse five. Careful planning puts you ahead in the long run. Hurry and scurry puts you further behind. There's careful planning. You strategize to bring strength. You're going to get ahead in the long run. Number two, so we got a game plan. Number two, we have to actualize, to actualize the consequence. And we've got to understand that in a world that says, if I don't get caught, it doesn't count. Reality is that there's always consequence for sin. We think, man, if I don't, if I don't get caught, like I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'll, I'll be vulnerable. There's been more than one Sunday where I've waited for Adam or Josh and the band to start worshiping, sneak out back to go check on my kids. I hang a left, give me a couple donuts, (laughs) because I think if nobody sees me, I don't get caught. The calories, they don't count, (laughs) right? Of course not. They do count. They always count, right? You pray them all you want. The calories count. And just because I didn't get exposed doesn't mean there's no consequence. Fellas, if we think negatively about our spouse, if we lust after other women and we think, I didn't get exposed, I didn't have an affair, I didn't get busted, so it doesn't really count, we miss the mark. Because there's always consequence. You may get exposed, but it may destroy you from the inside out. Because remember, what happens in your here travels to your heart. What takes root in your heart comes to life in your hand. And when you allow evil or negative uh, about your bride into your here, it takes root in your heart. And what happens? You get short with your spouse. You start yelling instead of being patient. You're not very kind. All of a sudden, you're not connected because you're destroying from the inside out. Right? It happens. And we could go example after example after example. You don't have to be exposed for there to be real consequence in your life. Proverbs in chapter 5 verse 21 says this, Mark well that God doesn't miss a move that you make. He's aware of every step you take and the shadow of your sin will overtake you and you'll find yourself stumbling all over yourself in the dark. Death is the reward of an undisciplined life. Your foolish decisions can trap you 
and a dead end. Friends, there's always consequence for sin. Your private life will always become your public life. And one way or the other, whether you're exposed or you implode, it always happens. And so it is better to understand the consequence for sin than it is to experience it. That if you can, on this side of it, actualize the consequence and go, there's actually a real consequence for this. And you can process what it would be like to have this consequence come to life in your actions, to look at people that you know who have struggled with the struggle that you struggle with and go, have you ever seen that somebody, they do something stupid, they get busted alcohol and an affair, they do immoral things at work or whatever, and you see them and they're, they're struggling with things that you struggle with and you see them and you go, how stupid. What are they thinking? And then you in the next breath turn around and do the same thing because you think that the consequences for them and somehow you're different. Somehow you're exempt. And work that way. And so if we can see and actualize the consequence and understand it before we experience it, it's going to help us close the gap. We've all heard it said it's good to learn from others' mistakes or from our mistakes, but it's better to learn from others' mistakes. It's a lot less painful that way. You can learn the hard lesson if you want, or you can just learn the easy lesson that somebody else had to pay, right? The choice is, is yours. Just remember, the cross doesn't exempt you from the consequence of stupid. The cross saves us, saves us from eternity. But you go be stupid today, and there's still real consequence here today. And number three, so we got a game plan, we've got to actualize, and we got to practice. I tell athletes all the time, you get great at what you get reps at. And some of us are great at sin because we get a lot of reps at sin, right? Anybody know somebody that's great at sin, right? We, we know them. Don't look at them if they're in here. But like, we know some people who are great at sin. Why? Because they get a lot of reps out of them. And if we're honest, we're probably looking in the mirror, right? That's the person that we need to look at. And some of us aren't very good at not sin, because we never get reps at not sin. And it won't be easy. Like to choose to close the gap, to choose to live into the new life is not easy. And that's why we have to ask for help. That if we think we can do it on our own, then we've already bought the lie of the evil one hook, line, and sinker. Maybe the greatest lie that he tells you is that you can defeat sin on your own. When Paul points out throughout Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, that when we start to think that by a knowledge of the law, that we can defeat the law, all we actually do is prove that the law is right and that we're not. When we begin to ask for help, we have to acknowledge that we're weak. We have to acknowledge that we need help, but it's in the acknowledging, it's in the admitting that we need help that we get the help that we actually need so that we can become that who we actually want to become. If we don't get the help, we can't become who it is that we want to be. And so we have to ask for help. We have to ask for direction. And, And everything in us screams, if they know my sin, they'll turn their back on me. Like they may pray for me, but on the way home, they're gonna go, babe, you will never believe what they said to me. You'll never believe what I had to pray about today. But that's what the evil one makes us think. You kidding me? We're in this together. We're on the same team. We're not against each other. And you bring the struggle out and you're going to go, man, I am so proud of you for owning it. 
I'm so proud of you for admitting it, for coming to get help. Like, I'm so excited that you're wanting to move towards God that I don't have any energy left to think. How dare you struggle with that? I don't have anything left with that. In the same way, when we come to Christ, God, I need help. He doesn't sit there and go, ha, yeah, definitely died for you. Uh-huh. He goes, no, I created you on purpose and for a purpose. From before time was time, I was purposing to chase after you for this moment. My son has finally come home. My daughter has returned. So friends, don't, don't shy away from asking for help. Because when we ask for help, we get the resources that we need so we can begin to get the reps at doing things the right way and not the wrong way. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen if you put the practice in. We want to close the gap. We're face-to-face. We want to close the gap. We've got a game plan. We've got to actualize the consequence, and we've got to practice doing what is right. So we look at Romans 7, 30,000 feet down to your kitchen. We see Paul pushing a big argument through that God's grace gift changes everything. We drop down to 20,000 feet, begin to see that that grace gift from five to eight, that grace gift is so foundationally secure that none of our sin, none of our struggle could ever discount the love of Christ. Go down to 10,000 feet. We begin to see Paul moving this argument forward that the law taught something good for a season and now we've got to continue on to grace. We can know what is right, but until we know grace, we can't do what is right. And as we get down to your life and mine, day to day, Monday to Sunday, we go, we've got to game plan and strategize. We've got to actualize the consequence. We've got to put it into practice. Friends, there's a lot in Romans 7, and I hope that no matter where you land from 30,000 feet to ground level, that this will prepare you and kind of give you a starting launching pad as you seek to engage with God this week in Romans 7.